the red flag flying here. Hello and welcome to Socialist Night Live. We are live um, and it is really nice to see you. So tonight, sometimes I have been known in the past to play a bit of a Philomena Kunk role and pretend I don't know what's going on. Tonight, that will not be um, a role. That will be a, gen a genuine position I have because I really don't know that much about um, French politics. I know a little bit, but really I, I'm, I don't really know what the system is. I don't know the importance of it. So tonight we're going to be going through that together. And if you've got any questions in the chat, please do ask them because we have got some people who do know about French politics, who do have an opinion on this and do know the importance of this for the left in the UK and around the world. We also have international listeners as well. So we have like people from South America who listen. We have people from all over Europe who listen. So this could be um, their chance to laugh at my ignorance about this topic whilst also going, wow, there are some people who uh, pay attention to what's going on in other countries. Um, firstly, I am going to introduce you to someone that you may have seen on the show before, may have heard on the show before. Um, and that is Harry Cross. How are you doing, Harry? Hello, Paul. I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me again. You're always welcome here. And also, we've got Stanley. Stanley, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show tonight. Oh, thank, you. thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure to have you. So what we're going to do now is let's find out what your position is, why you care about French politics so much. We'll start with you, Stanley, because we've not really heard from you before. So, um, yeah, what's your connection to France, French politics? Why are you so interested in this this particular topic area? Well, I'll start with my uh, French connection. Um, so I arrived here five years ago as an Erasmus student. And so I uh, studied at Sciences Po Toulouse and... Um, so we studied a bit of French politics and we did a lot of comparative politics. And then um, learning French, because I arrived in France being an A0 learner, and then they, it sparked my interest in language and politics. And so then it also naturally sparked my interest in French politics. And so um, here I am today back in France, living here and um, potentially having to face not just Brexit, but now Frexit. Yeah. Okay. So Frexit, that could be a thing, yeah? Yeah. Uh, it was a major policy of uh, the far-right candidate, Marie Le Pen, and, uh, and um, I wouldn't be surprised if that was still her major policy push if she becomes president. Okay. Well, I'm sure we'll learn a little bit about that later on when we, uh, when we get into the, the details of uh, what the policies are of the presidential candidates. Um, Harry, what's your background with France? So um, I'm a French speaker, Paul, and I've been following French politics for more than 10 years now, including uh, the three presidential runs of Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the left's near miss in the election that just happened. Um, in that time, I've been following French politics, um, both to keep up my French, but also because I think it's interesting and useful to compare politics in different countries. So as I was a member of the Labour Party in the UK, I'd compare what was happening in the Labour Party and with Jeremy Corbyn compared to what was happening in France with Jean-Luc Mélenchon and the people behind both of them. Um, I lived in France very briefly from 2013 to 2014 as a student, 
And I was a party member at that time in the left front that, that, that backed Jean-Luc Mélenchon. So I've still got friends across the channel in France. Uh, and I can see on social media how things are going there. Okay, so far, uh, far more interesting in the topic. Both of you have far more information than I do. So I'm looking forward to learning something tonight. Um, we've had a question in from Mia. She's saying, a what role? I'm talking about Philomena Kunk, who uh, on the... Philomena Kunk was a character played... Oh, what was the thing that was on... Um, it was on a political program where Charlie Brooker. Yeah, on Charlie Brooker where like basically she was just an idiot. Um and it was quite useful because she would be, play the the idiot character. And in the past I've kind of played played uh-huh. down my knowledge of a topic in order to bring on the conversation, but this time I really am an idiot when it comes to this. So uh that is um that is the position we're in. Okay. So uh, let's start. Danny off. and I are the opposite. We're idiots who are going to play up our knowledge for the purpose. Oh. <laughs> Speaking for myself, at least. Sorry, I missed that. Then I had some audio problems. Oh, sorry. No, I was just talking about my uh, lack of knowledge of things. So we're going to move into um, what's going on. So why is um, why is French politics important to us in the UK and uh, more specifically on the left? We'll start with Stanley again. Well, something, um, well, obviously, France is our closest neighbour, other than Ireland. And so, and we've always had a very uh, frenemy relationship with France. And I think we have a lot of love and hate in that relationship. And so I think it's whatever happens in France will directly affect um, our national conversation, and particularly around the Pas du Calais, the the area around Calais and the um, the policy questions around immigration and the status of the jungle. But also something that I always found interesting about um, French left politics is how much, I, sorry to insult my um, English colleagues, but like how much more alive French politics seems on the left. How Well, at least how much more vocal they are in the streets. And so I think um, French politics is very much how we might have been in the 70s and 60s. Hmm. So, like uh, you, you've mentioned a couple of interesting things there. Obviously, there's the the Calais jungle, as a lot of people call it, which is um, a big topic in the UK because we've got Pretty Patel posturing and talking about like what she plans to do and gunboats and all sorts of things. Do you hear much of that in France? Because you're living in France at the moment, aren't you? Do Do you hear much yep. of that kind of rhetoric coming over, or do? Do you kind of ignore that and think, well, she's just, um, you know, just saying things or she's an idiot or, or whatever? Is that a part of the national conversation there? Um, well, I'll start with, I'll start with um, Brexit, really. The, the French were very upset and rejected by us over Brexit. And so anything that we sort of espouse around Brexit and immigration, they feel they've done their part. They've, it was our choice to leave and we have chosen to leave the debate. And again, it sort of ties into this rejection of um, their feelings of rejection from us choosing to leave the European community. Mm. And so um, I think sometimes, not, not every French person, but some uh, French people, they feel a bit shocked by some of the things that are coming out of the national press and sometimes our national politicians in the UK. 
It is pretty shocking when they're talking about like sending gunboats for people on makeshift rafts. To be honest, like it's a probably a relatively sensible thing to be shocked by um, the bizarre nature of our our political debate at the moment in the UK. Um, Harry, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Stan will also agree we shouldn't idol idolize the political debate in France. Uh, the far right is pretty ugly, and I guess we'll discuss the far right later on. But what's been worrying over the past five years and beyond has been how much of the anti-migrant and in France, I guess, specifically an anti-Muslim rhetoric has bled through into the discourse of centrist and centre-left politicians and centre-right. Um, again, much as it has this side of the border. So... They're playing to different audiences, they're playing to different concerns, Priti Patel and Emmanuel Macron. But Emmanuel Macron's uh, interior minister is a pretty ugly character as well. So, yeah, I mean, we should rightfully be up in arms about what's going on in Britain, but it's not always um, that rosy the other side of the channel either. Um, in terms of comparing French and British politics, I, I think it's always good to look uh, beyond your own national setting because sometimes when we're doing politics in whichever country, we're told that things have to be a certain way. You've got to be realistic. And then there's someone who's going to come and tell you what being realistic means. So um, on the left under Corbyn, we're always told you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't, you can't, you can't, you can't. You've got to do it a certain way. So looking at another country it helps you see how things are done a certain way, how things are done a bit differently. Does it work? Does it not work? So it helps to expand your imagination a bit and, uh, I think imagination is very important in politics because uh, it's perhaps the beginning of all of our political engagements and projects is imagining a better world and then trying to work for it. Mm -hmm. Okay, brilliant. Absolutely. Uh, I feel like I'm I'm being enlightened already. Um, so what has happened to this point then? So we've got to we've got to a certain stage. There is an election, but I want to go back before the election. Now, I've heard of Jean-Luc Mélenchon for um, a number of years now. And um, he's narrowly missed out on the on the. Well, actually, I'm going to let you talk about this. I'm going to let you tell us about this now, Harry. You've got a couple of graphics that you want us to look at, don't you? So, can you explain what the situation is at the moment, and then we'll talk a little bit in detail about some of those characters that we're talking about. Yeah. So, if Paul, are you going to open the graphics? Could we go to the very first one, which is quite simply uh, the breakdown of the votes? Um, yes, so it's worth explaining the French electoral system firstly. Um, in the first round, there's as many candidates as will qualify, and there were 12 candidates this time. Um, and then the top two go off to a runoff, and the runoff vote is taking place tomorrow. So on the one hand, one of the things that makes French politics exciting is that unlike British politics, you've got lots of different candidates, lots of options on the menu. The downside is that there's no prize for coming in a close third. It's the top two who go to the runoff. So even if you miss out by a tiny bit, you don't get through. And unfortunately for those of us on the radical left or the socialist left uh, who listen to socialist think tank, it was our guy who came in a very narrow third, um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Um, I don't know, is, is the graphic showing, Paul? It is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, it came in a very frustrating uh, third place. Um, so on the one hand, you could say that's a failure, but it's worth thinking about the long history of this. If we look down to the bottom of the graphic, we can see lots of very small bars coloured in red and pink. 
for Fabian Roussel, Anne Hildalgo, um, the Green candidate, slightly bigger, Yannick Jadot. So these were other left-wing candidates, and they were like the respectable left-wing mainstream. They're the Keir Starmers of this world. Where I think, um... he's more like Jeremy Corbyn, but a sort of punk Jeremy Corbyn who can pick <laughs> up a bit of a fuss in a television station. Uh, I better stop. So if Sandy wants to jump in, no, I was just quite surprised you described um, Philippe Bouteau and um, I forget her name, um, Natalie Atour as uh, the Starmers of the left of France. They are not Keir Starmers. They're uh, small Trotskyist candidates, but Hildalgo and Yannick Jadot, um, they're the Keir Starmers of French politics. Uh, the Greens in France aren't quite as radical as the Greens in Britain. Um, Fabien no, Rachel is uh, the Communist Party. Um, so the Communists and the Trotskyists, um, for some time, they've never been at very high levels. But the party that Hildalgo represents, which is the centre-left party, um, used to be the dominant party on the left in French politics. And from 2012 until 2017, the president of France was from this party. He, he, he was a socialist, so they'd won those elections um, and they were the biggest party in France. And now what does the same party get? It gets 1.7 something percent. So the party nearly disappears. And, and this um, is very interesting because for a long time in France, exactly as we've heard our side of the channel, we were told, oh, far left, radical left, that will never work. That's out of touch with reality. The, the workers, the, the voters don't want it. It wouldn't work, it's impractical. We need to be centrist, mainstream. That's where the votes are. That's where the ideas are. And it hasn't happened. Those people who played that safe middle course, they crashed and burned. Whereas Mélenchon built on his vote score in 2017, which already built on his vote score in 2012. So it's interesting seeing that long march that it's his third time as a candidate in the space of 10 years, building significantly in his vote share each time and having an extremely frustrating near miss so that's the first thing to see maybe uh stan can say what he thought about seeing it on the ground and then we can talk about what jean-luc did right or not well it's um speaking to some of my um french comrades some people who are in the mpa such as uh philip Foutel's party the new uh, new park anti-capitalist party they're almost becoming quite uh disenfranchised with melanchon they feel he's the only candidate of leading the left charge of popular French left politics. And they seem um, quite surprisingly like he's um, sort of sucking up all the vacuum of um, the other French candidates, of the left candidates. Like they almost suggest that it's time for him to step down as the uh, spokesperson of the populist left in France. Is, could that be? Is that something to do with the system? So obviously, like Jean Luc Mélenchon was very, very close. I've just, I'm just going to pop back to the graph again. Again, he was very, very close to Marine Le Pen, um, and could have, could have meant it was a runoff between Macron and Le Pen. I suppose if everything was a united front, does that not give him some sort of like? If if you were going to talk about these as left candidates, does that not give him some sort of? Um, I don't know, like moral uh, justification for running and picking up a lot of those left votes, even if some people would think, well, he might not be the ideal left candidate, but he is the most likely left candidate and a genuine left candidate rather than... Because I, I'm sure I've 
I'm sure Macron was in the Socialist Party, wasn't he? Wasn't he a minister yeah, in the Socialist Party? Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, Melanchon is he's like a genuine leftist. He's obviously got, as um, Harry has said, he's running three presidential elections and each time he's got more and more votes. And he's doing very well for a far left candidate in French politics. But there's like a bit of frustration with him. Um, and um, yeah, sorry, I've lost my um, train of thought. So, so the, the the other candidates, like, do they think that there's it's time for him to step aside and get behind another candidate, or do you think that, like, oh, is well, that what people are thinking, or is there a moral obligation to back the most popular candidate here? Uh, from the from the people I've spoken to, they have this sort of frustration with him that he is, but he also is France's um, most left-wing candidate, probably since Mitterrand, uh, who was More the... More than Mitterrand, I'd say. He's probably the most left-wing politician, president, sorry, um, since the 80s. He was a very successful, well, socialist uh, president who uh, managed to get two, oh no, three uh, presidential terms under varying forms of colours. So, like, I guess, what, what are the other candidates thinking then? So the other people have come out, are they are they devastated that their votes could have gone towards a runoff? Because this is, is this the runoff from hell, basically? Is this, like, the last, two, the two candidates that are going for it, um, who picked up between them just over 50% of the votes... Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they've picked up just over 50% of the votes and there's a runoff now between those two and it looks like the worst case scenario, doesn't it, for those, for people, or is it, or could it, could there have been a worse case scenario than this? No, literally, I think <laughs> uh, a repeat of 2017. Obviously, uh, now we've on the back of... Um, you know, Macron is no longer a new candidate. He's defending his record. And so now Marine Le Pen has got not only a modified policy platform, she's obviously moderated her policies, but also now they've got um, frustrations with um, Macron of five years. And so the, uh, the worst case scenario this time is that she may actually win. Because mm. although uh, Macron is leading in the polls at the moment, he... Um, there's a lot of um, undecided voters this time around, and I think there's a lot of concern that they will swing to Le Pen, particularly on the left. So, look, so um, as I said, do, do we know what the other candidates are feeling now at the moment? Like, are, are those candidates maybe regretful, or is this something like Harry? Would you... um, so I think in terms of the other candidates on the left, um, there was a genuine difference of views between Mélenchon and uh, some of the candidates, notably Yannick Jadot, the Green candidate, and Anne Hidalgo, the candidate for the Socialist Party, um, which is a sort of like mainstream Labour equivalent, the sort of equivalent of Keir Starmer, Tony Blair, you name it. Um, and that's what we saw in the Jeremy Corbyn period, like there was a real divide in Labour and people try and present it as a concern about electability, 
But I think that was disingenuous. There were also like genuine disagreements of ideas and of policy, um, which is totally fine and legitimate, but to discuss it as such. Um, in terms of strategic voting, I think one thing that was quite striking about uh, Mélenchon was he didn't make his pitch, vote for me, I'm the guy with the best shot. He said, you know, I want people to be convinced. I want people to get behind the policies. Um, and he said that starting at a point in time when his polling was much lower and he really had um, a last minute boost. And he did it sort of on the calculation that people are sort of disgusted with being told, oh, you've got to vote for this. It's the least worst. Um, you know, parties doing deals together, trying to force the electorate to vote a certain way. Um, and I seemed it worked well. Um, I'll put my cards on the table. I'm, I'm a fan of Mélenchon, quite convinced by strategy. Uh, Stan maybe is more sceptical on those people. He's more sceptical. But um, I think that strategy of, you know, a very back to basics form of politics of decide what you think is right and talk to people directly, voters directly to try and change their minds and convince them. On the one hand, it's so fundamental to what politics should be about, but we often forget it. Uh, and we often talk about things other than the policies and address voters in other terms. So I think that's something to learn from. Yeah, I definitely think Melenchon, um, he definitely knows how to talk to the French electorate and he definitely knows how to um, address those concerns. Yeah, so that's with regards to like the other left candidates. I think some of them, there's a genuine policy divide. You know, we saw it with uh, Corbyn and the anti-Corbynites. It wasn't just a practical disagreement. They had fundamentally different worldviews. And then there's smaller left-wing ones, uh, the Trotskyist parties who Stan has referred to, the supporters of Philippe Poutou and Nathalie Artaud. Um, the big frustration for Mélenchon and his supporters has been the Communist Party, uh, which you can see here in the bright red, supporting Fabien Roussel, which came in at just over 2%. I think so it's not important a huge share of the vote, but it, the past two times round they backed Mélenchon, and if you can assume that the numbers would have added up nice and neatly, which is not how politics works, it would have pushed them over the line. And also, it's important to note um, the French Communist Party is no longer really communist. They they um, sort of abandoned the communist ideology in the eighties to switch towards what was called Euro communism which was this sort of democratically minded uh, reformist version of communism, which of course has now led to today. I would say they are like the lay soft, soft left of labor. They're sort of leftists, but they're also a bit skeptical of um, going too far left on the basis of electability. And um, talking about the other candidates in the left in France, I think the one thing we have in the UK is we have the two party system effectively. And so all the minor parties are sucked up into the factions of the Labour Party, whereas France still has that plural, plural nature of leftist parties. Mm. So yeah, I'd agree with that. And it, it was perhaps even clearer five years ago when the French electorate sort of really split four or five ways with yeah. Le Pen on the far right and Fion, the sort of equivalent of the Conservative Party centre-right. And then on the other hand, uh, Mélenchon, the radical left, um, Hamon supporting the remainders of the Socialist Party, and Macron as a centrist. Um, so you had this sort of really fractured political system. 
And in the same year in the UK, we had the 2017 election, which was like the return of two party politics. So over 80 percent of voters nationally, over 90 percent of voters in England voted either Labour or Conservative. And the explanation for that, exactly as Stanley has just said, that in the UK, people who would be in different political parties in France are sort of forced into the same party, that the Conservative Party gets a sort of UKIP wing and it gets a sort of uh, business country shire Tories and sticks them together. And the Labour Party gets a sort of centrist technocrats and it gets a sort of Corbynistas and sticks them together in the same party. Yeah, whereas... Um... With uh, France, you have Les Republicains, Le Pen, who are effectively the British Conservatives, I would I would argue. And then Zemmour is the Farage now of French politics, sort of this very outspoken far-right candidate, but he's not within the two-party nature of politics, two camps of politics. Mm. So, like, it, I guess... Did anyone get the rack together on this one? Did anyone like did any particular political ideology get their rack together? Is Macron attracting people who are saying, well, we want to keep Le Pen out for whatever reason? So does Macron soak up any of a left vote or is Macron now completely divorced? Because I, I, I don't actually know this because, as I say, he was in the Socialist Party, which you say wasn't actually as socialist as perhaps it declared itself to be. Um, but he was part of the Socialist Party, and does does he pick up any of the left vote whatsoever? And does Le Pen pick up any of the left vote whatsoever? Because I've heard Le Pen trying to appeal to certainly work and class sensibilities, certainly like um, she's changed her language, because I would always see her as someone who is from, she should be seen as being quite a political elitist, I guess, given that like, you know, she's got the family background in there, Regardless of her politics, she's from a bit of a political dynasty, isn't she? Rather than being this like grassroots person, but she seems to be speaking the language of the grassroots at times. Um, so, like, where is their support coming from? Um, well, like a lot of Western countries, uh, France has uh, suffered, or well, they've suffered from their elitist choices to move uh, production abroad. There are a lot of communities in the north where Le Pen gets a lot of her support who are post-industrial. So she gets a lot of her support from there. And of course, um, uh, she's obviously very uh, xenophobic. And so she's attached into that also um, xenophobic fears some French people have um, towards other communities in France. And then what she's changed, obviously, with this election is she has now changed her language, to, as you have identified, um, activist-based. And so she's now talking a lot more about the cost of living crisis, which is normally what is what the left talks about. So she's very much targeting sort of disenfranchised left, maybe generally older left voters. Whereas Macron is, of course, um, the anti-Le Pen candidate at the moment in the second round. I don't, I'm not sure if Harry agrees with that. Um, yeah, I think I think I agree with a lot of that. Um, yeah, the, the the far right with Le Pen has got strong support from uh, poor manual working class voters. I don't know if it's the same individuals who would have once voted for the left, or it's people who you know in another time 
people of their demographic would have voted for the left. That's a detail that's for the, you know, the sociologists to go and figure out. But yeah, I think this is a challenge for us um, in the UK, France and everywhere else, you know, is the left, you know, out of touch with the manual working class? Those aren't the only people who are workers. Um, you know, we shouldn't, you know, get hung up in an idea that being working class only means one thing, only means a male worker in a factory. But um, also, if we're not engaging with those people and we're engaging with different sectors of the working class at the exclusion of others, it is something to think and work through. And it's something that's changed with the far right votes that exactly as both of you have said, um, the Le Pen vote used to be much better off, much more middle class. And it sort of followed its electorate that as it sort of attracted working class voters with xenophobic um, aspirations, it's also come to reflect back um, some redistributive economic policies and then has picked up more votes as a result. Um, Macron, the voting profile changed a lot in the space of five years that uh, he really picked up the old centre-left electorate five years ago. Uh, teachers, um, well-off retirees, big cities, students. He's lost some of that as he's become more the classic right-wing vote. That if, again, if you look at the votes, you see the equivalence of the centre-right Conservatives. They've gone very low, but Macron's picked up that vote. So he, he's picked up the vote of um, old people in particular vote very heavily for Macron. So there's a sense of fear and security vote going towards him. Um, also, um, public, well-paid public functionaries. Um, so that vote Macron has really cornered. Finally, in terms of people who got their act together, um, I'm going to sound like I'm here just to sing the praises of Mélenchon. And why not? If the left has got lessons to learn, that's perhaps where we should look. Um, it's worth emphasising that he's had a long march to get to where he is. It's his third presidential run. That could be criticised as, OK, move aside for someone else. But he does it well. And the French left was very weak when he began the left of the left. And perhaps in Britain, we're too far the other way of thinking once someone loses an election, we chuck them in the bin and we start all over again. So if you look at the results from two weeks ago in France, when you see a very large vote for Mélenchon and the Socialist Party beneath 2%, you wouldn't have been able to imagine that 10 years ago. 10 years ago, so in the election before last in France, the Socialist Party was the biggest party. It went on to win. So what we're looking at is the equivalent of if in 10 years' time, the UK Labour Party fell to under 10% and a new party founded by Jeremy Corbyn or John McDonnell, or someone we don't know yet, um, gets over a fifth of the vote and is one of the biggest parties in the land. But it's um, interesting you mentioned about um, uh, how... Uh, Macron come in and swept all these votes up back in 2017. You know, he took policy ideas from the left and right. Yeah, Macron or Le Pen, you know, they've gone both ways. Um, that the sort of the electorate that would have once gone behind the centre-right Conservative Party equivalent, some of them really, you know, xenophobia is their big concern and some of them are sort of certain middle-class respectability is their big concern. Mm. So uh, based on those priorities, they've gone one way or the other. I've um, I heard from um, taking a lot of um, the the Conservative Party of France votes. It wasn't Le Pen who was taking the uh, centre right votes. It was Zemmour, and so of course now Zemmour has endorsed um, Le Pen. 
So I always thought it was going to be uh, Le Pen and Zemmour taking votes off each other, but it was actually um, Zemmour was by bypassing um, Le Pen, but of course now he's swung his support behind her. He, Zemmour only got um, how many votes? Seven point something percent. Yeah, 7.07 percent. Mm. So, um, right, uh, Harry, was there anything else on that graphic that you wanted to that you wanted to bring up? Uh, not on the first slide, which just shows the voter breakdown. I've got a few other graphs about uh, age, uh, age and professions. So if that comes up in conversation, we'll get to that. But uh, I don't have to for the moment. Okay, that's absolutely great. Right, so um, right, so what's the next phase then? So the left have kind of entirely missed out. We've got the, the worst possible scenario that we could have for um, for the left, where, where we've got a centrist who actually seems to be speaking the language of the right in a lot of cases. Is that correct? Have I misunderstood this? Or is it true that Marie Le Pen actually looked shocked at something that it was at Macron or one of his ministers said about Muslims. Yeah, so um, Macron pitches himself as the centre and taking the best ideas from the right and the left. Um, and for people who aren't very political, um, that sounds like a very attractive proposition. And he did a big breakthrough in 2017 on that basis. And the Conservative Party in the UK does very well by saying, we're not interested in politics, nor are you just vote for us. Um, those of us who are slightly more political anoraks, we know that centrism is uh, a bit intellectually unsatisfactory. How can you be 50% uh, left and 50% right? How can you mix your water and your wine? And indeed, um, Macron has been um, governing from the right in economic policy and indeed in his rhetoric towards, somewhat towards migrants, but especially towards France's um, existing Muslim population. And I found that quite striking because his big pitch in 2017 was, um, at least I'm not the far right. And it turns out he is a little bit the far right. You've put water in your wine a little bit too much. It seems you've become soft on the question of Islam. And she was genuinely speechless. Uh, and for once in her life, I can sympathise. So um, Macron's been playing to the far right. I like a lot the phrase that Stanley used, uh, the extreme centre. I think that's a correct way to term Macron and his political ilk in other countries. And if I'd voted for Macron in the first round five years ago to stop the far right, I'd be a very dissatisfied consumer by now. Um, I think it's important as well for um, to, to explain the role of religion or lack of religion in French public life as well and why I think sometimes there's just downright racism in French public life and also because um, in 1902 they voted to separate the church and state completely although there are some cases in the east of France where the French state still does give uh, subsidies to religious schools Catholic religious schools but um, generally, in so I work in um, the state schools in France. And so, for example, you're not allowed to wear a cross. You're not really allowed to talk about religion unless it's from a, a class point of view. And there's a lot of Mus young Muslim girls who are not allowed to wear their 
uh, religious clothing in their classrooms. So this law going back to 1902 and um, the way it influences French politics today about religiously practicing Muslims, it infiltrates down to every part of French society. And it goes down to even to the youngest of five years of age, this sort of notion of religion is not meant to be in French society, unless you're a white Catholic. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's really interesting. I didn't know that you weren't allowed to wear a cross. I knew there was certain things about, I saw a thing, a few things a few years ago about people getting really um, upset about people wearing bikinis. Um, and I remember my dad, my dad's an Irish Catholic and I remember my dad's joke was, um, I think he'd probably, um, I think the world would probably prefer if I wore a bikini at the beach, you know, these would be like nice and, uh, nice and covered up. Do you know what I mean? So like, what was all that about? What was that like caring so much about what people wore at the beach? Yeah. So uh, as Stanley says, there's sort of historic laws in France separating church and state. And that was born out of struggles in the 19th century between the Catholic Church and um, secular po politicians. Secular meaning um, perhaps the individuals were non-practicing, but believing there should be a separation between religious structures and political structures. structures. So not necessarily yeah, atheistic, like, but secular. Religion is the personal and it's private. Yeah, mm. but that, that those but those laws and the, that body of thought was really born out of a political struggle with the Catholic Church, which was the creed of the majority of French people, a powerful political player. So it's a really particular historical context um, that sort of maybe faded into the background in the middle of the 20th century because religious practice was declining. Uh, and there was a sort of degree of consensus after the Second World War about what France's political institutions should look like. We can nuance that, but yeah, yeah, as far as yeah. the role of religion, at least. Um, <laughs> but then in the 21st century, these laws have been reanimated and repurposed to turn their fire on Muslims um, okay. and to pass new laws um, to go further and further and further in prescribing what and where Muslims can wear things to associated with their faith. So I think Stanley would probably agree, it's not just a continuity in culture, attitudes and laws from the beginning of the 20th century. It's been very much whipped up and revived to feed a very contemporary Islamophobia. And what's particular but, about this is that the left, some parts of the left, have really gotten on board with this because it's been able to be framed in terms of a separation of church and state and neutrality between all religions rather than just bashing a particular minority. And finally, with regards to the burkini, Paul mentioned, B-U-R, burkini, so beachwear designed to cover nearly all parts of the body for the sake of modesty. Some people argued, because this was being worn for religious reasons, that it was a religious symbol being worn in a public place and therefore violated secular laws. So you had policemen on the beach in the south of France going up to Muslim women, enjoying the sunshine in the clothing they wanted to wear, and harassing them and handing out fines. So to sort of bring it all back, like there's this really like deep um, ingrained anti-religiousness in French politics, not, uh, not anti-religion, anti-Muslim practicing Islam. And so like um, 
Macron and Le Pen are really sort of, uh, Macron's really trying to play the soft card on this, but of course still appeal to um, sort of like the soft left of um, French politics. Well, he especially did in 2017. And as we've said, in 2022, he he's really shown his colours in terms of uh, the economy. Yeah. Because so, electorally, it's quite interesting. Macron, so as we said, French politics is a runoff system. And for a long time, your dream was to be in a runoff with the far right. Because traditionally, in the runoff, everyone votes against the far right. So they'll say, no, 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 we can't have... and. So even if the far right, you know, have got a solid block, a quarter, a third of people who want to vote for them, um, everyone will vote against them. So that was Macron's plan and dream, both this election, and the last time round, being a runoff with the far right. So when it's the election, Macron is playing to his liberal credentials, saying Le Pen is racist, Le Pen is dangerous, we're against that. And that was reflected in a very liberal electorate for Macron five years ago. Once he was actually in government, um, he played a completely different strategy and tried to enlarge his political coalition to take parliamentarians and voters from the right. It seemed successfully. And in government, uh, he definitely played an anti-Muslim rhetoric and he will find out whether he's able to backpedal from that enough in this election or not. So like tomorrow, do we find out who will be the president of France? Yes, that was my best Philomena Kunk there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and 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 does it get a magical scepter? No, at um, we've we've got one of those in the UK, haven't we? A magical scepter that allows us to do politics in the in the Houses of Parliament. But mm. anyway, um, so tomorrow is the is the big runoff. It's going to happen. Where do we think the where do we think the votes are going to go? Is this on a knife edge? You know, like, uh, do we think the left will be apathetic and say, actually, I don't want to vote for either of these candidates? Will there was someone who mentioned in the comments before, I can't access them now because when we went off and came back on, but someone in the comments before said that they'd, um, they'd heard about someone on the left saying they were actually were going to vote for Le Pen to keep Macron out. So we've got this very, very strange situation that I don't understand so where do we think these votes are going to go from you know there's a very large left-wing block there there's a large enough left-wing block that could have got a left-wing candidate on there if we looked at what the graphic said earlier on um how many where are those votes going to end up do we think I think it Macron's going to edge it out I think um there is a, um, as you highlighted, there are um, some left-wing people who are going to vote for Le Pen. But the thing is, it's really unsure. It really is that much knife. Because uh, Macron's got about 55% in the polls at the moment. And Le Pen's got the rest, of course. But there's also a lot of apolitical unknown voters in the, in the millions. And so they could really influence the vote if they discern decide to turn out because so like we were saying before didn't vote, these people who didn't vote in these primaries well or be, people who are not sure who they're going to vote for Le Pen or Macron mm. 
Yeah, they have more strong feelings about those, or or, or they do have strong feelings about both of those candidates, and it's like which one is the least, least bad. I guess we're back to that again. Um, I do not know because obviously they're the silent. They're the I would assume they're the silent uh, group of politics. Yeah, I think the activists behind Mélenchon, next to none of them, um, are going to be voting for Le Pen because they see her as the far right, and she is the far right. And when it came to endorsing candidates in the runoff, Mélenchon had a particular line of saying, not one vote for the far right. And that was his way of saying, you know, I'm not neutral between these two candidates, but nor am I positively endorsing Emmanuel Macron. But, you know, don't do one vote for the far right. And there's a question of strategy as well, because like a lot of his voters will not vote for Macron, regardless of what Mélenchon says. So is Mélenchon going to say something that could lose those people from a political coalition? There's a legitimate, to my eyes, legitimate strategic question there. In terms of the wider electorate for Mélenchon, um, polling shows they're going to split roughly three ways, um, with a large third voting Macron, no doubt, out of disgust a large third not voting at all, but in some cases consciously deciding not to vote at all or to spoil their ballot. And then a small third, a bit less than a third now, I think, perhaps nearer to 20%, who will vote for Le Pen. Um, I'm in a lot of Facebook groups, social media groups supporting Jean-Luc, and it's interesting seeing the discussions there. Um, There's very few, there's no activists advocating or saying that they will vote for Le Pen. Um, there's a few people who voted for Mélenchon and are disgusted with Macron, who they see as sort of a suited, well, well-heeled president of the rich. And so for them, Marine Le Pen is the more working class candidate, which she isn't in terms of her personal biography. In terms of her electorate, she is. Um, and there's also a very interesting comment of someone saying, um, I'll get to that comment in a second, I think there's lots of people spoiling their ballot or not voting out of disgust. A lot of people voted Macron last time to stop Le Pen, but to their eyes, it's a deliberate setup. Macron and his supporters in the media want it to be a runoff with the far right. Uh, and they're saying, OK, well, we don't want to you know, be puppets in this game where the far right and the extreme centre are the best of enemies. They love being in a runoff with each other and the extreme centre winning government only moves further and further to the right. So a lot of people will be spoiling their ballots. Finally, what was very interesting was someone saying, um, you know, an ordinary voter, not an activist, saying that she was disgusted by everything that Le Pen stood for, that she was a hospital worker, and she wanted to be allowed to go back to work in the hospital again without being vaccinated. Whereas under Macron, this is not possible. Whereas Le Pen like Mélenchon, has opposed some of the more drastic aspects, draconian aspects of Macron's management of COVID. So I think lots of people are focusing in on individual policies, be it the retirement age, be it the management of COVID, uh, be it some moderately redistributive things in Le Pen's programme, may vote Le Pen for that reason, um, whereas those who take a step back and are concerned about the xenophobic aspects of it probably won't. There's um there's there's something I want to pick up on there about uh, when you were talking about vaccinations, I've noticed lately that the most um authoritarian people on vaccinations appear to be this extreme centre that we're talking about. So the centrists are like right, they seem much more keen on putting in, 
putting in um, rules where people have to be vaccinated and things like that. Much more keen than uh, than both the left and the right. Now, within the left, there are people who believe that there should be mandatory vaccinations, and within the right, there are. But there seems to be a lot more consensus in the extreme centre, in a lot less understanding of people saying, actually, no, I'm not quite sure about this. When I want to talk about this, I want to, like, there, like there can be no discussion around that. Is that something that is going to play? Is is this going to play a role in um? in this runoff then in that case if the nurse was saying that she didn't she wanted to go back to work without being vaccinated um, <clears throat> well i'd just like to talk about like um i've lived through um two two lockdowns now in france and um they were very very strict compared to britain um in what we could do and M macron very much uh uh, upset the beehive when he made the pass, uh, the pass vaccinal, or pass sanitaire, sorry, uh, pass vaccinal come after, when he made it um, mandatory to show your barcode from your vaccine pass to even enter a cafe or a restaurant or a, a movie theater. And so I think uh, the French are very based on their values of liberty and so he very much um angered a large group of people and there are very much i've met um people last summer traditionally left people who were very angry and alienated by this coercive behavior of a centrist government so i was working on farms last summer and you would think and normally when you work on the organic farms that you would meet more open-minded left-wing people but a lot of these people who i met who are very um left-wing were also very anti-covid anti-past sanitaire and so i feel um that will be a big factor in this just across french society whoever you spoke to um you would meet people who are very angry angered by this past sanitaire health pass sorry yeah, was there was there no debate in front? Because um, one of the things that I think about all of the, all of this is um, the people who are worried about the authoritarian aspect of what's going on with vaccine passes and so on. It's simply because there's no debate. You aren't allowed to say. You aren't allowed to say. Actually, can we weigh up the pros and cons of whether this vaccine is safe? No, no, no. It's safe. It's safe. I have to do that. And I said, well, can we not talk about it? And that debate really hasn't been had publicly. Um, certainly not in the UK, as far as I'm concerned. They just had a lot of people from Pfizer and a lot of people from the government saying, "Yes, it is safe. Take the vaccine. This is going to be great." And then when anyone came up with anything else and said, well, and then Pfizer were going to bury the documentation for 75 years and all, all sorts of quite worrying things that I think it's perfectly legitimate to be worried about. That's not to say it's a bad idea to have a vaccine. That's just it's perfectly normal to have a question and have a have a real debate. Has that debate been had in France or is it just the same same as i've just described there like where people have just said no this is safe this is fine there is no problem here shut up go away we don't want to talk about this um, you're right the idea of an extreme center that both of you has used is quite instructive because central to a lot of centrist politics is that politics doesn't really exist 
being left wing or right wing, these are just two different forms of extremes, two different ways you can be a bit excessive or over the top. So politics is actually just about being common sense and centrist. And, um, and so then when you apply that to actual political management, it's pretended that, okay, the aim of a centrist in government is to pursue what any reasonable person will agree is common sense against the naysayers, the conspiracy theorists, the extremists. Now, with COVID at the beginning, we were dealing with a big unknown, a virus we didn't know how it worked. So that was a time for blunt measures, big lockdowns, wait and see, wait for the research to come in. But then there came to be a point where we had to have a societal discussion. It was, OK, what's the trade off between lockdowns and health? What forms of lockdown work? We're, we're, we're locking down forms of social life, but not all forms of professional working life. The vaccines, as, as far as I can tell, having the two vaccines makes a huge difference to the collective immunity of, of a population. The third vaccine doesn't seem to extend immunity from serious symptoms that much longer. So perhaps we should have a discussion about whether blanket third vaccine programmes um, are legitimate or not. These are all political discussions we need to start having about the way we live, about how we enforce public health measures, um, about how we build consensus. And people who have a sort of centrist or extreme centrist view, centrist view, saying that politics is just common sense, and anyone who goes against the common sense is a conspiracy theorist or an extremist, they're not open to discussions like that, because discussions like that for them shouldn't exist. So hence the very authoritarian measures we've seen, certainly to a great degree in the UK, but I think especially in France, and there's a big, big blowback against that, and yep. Le Pen's probably in quite a favoured position to benefit from that electorally. Yeah, you definitely, um, it was often you would um, hear about a president, often you'd be um, doing your thing in the day and then you would hear the, the announcement tonight, Look, Macron is talking tonight, or Jean Castex, the current prime minister of France, you'd hear of the, the announcement and then they would just come out with this new policy and that was it. And I believe, I forget now, I was, it was in July and they gave us, I think it was um, as little as four weeks to get a vaccine pass, to get our, to get evidence of our first jab before you could get your first jab and the barcode or I've had COVID within the last four or six months. And then suddenly there was this societal transformation where I think also like uh, Macron played on this confusion about what it meant for a pass sanitaire, health pass, what it meant for society. And whilst we, uh, whilst a lot of people were discussing this, Macron introduced it. So he sort of introduced the policy and then there was the debate afterwards. Mm. And I do know that he was forced to change one or two things about the pass sanitaire, but I'm not, I can't quite remember them exactly at the moment. Mm. So it it sounds like uh, in in a lot of ways it was possibly even more extreme than than we had in the UK, um, which was actually pretty extreme from certain points of view and certainly like the way the the vaccine went out and everyone had to you know go along with this and you you weren't allowed to question. I think that's most of the people I hear complaining about this saying we weren't allowed to question anything 
we weren't allowed to find out about anything. It was simply, this is fine, and if you say anything other than this, then that makes you an anti-vaxxer, conspiracy theorist, nut job. And then that forced people towards that position where they're like, well, actually, if I'm going to be called a nut job, um, I might as well you know, own that. Um, so yeah. uh, possibly a very, very counterproductive strategy. So let's look into the future. If Macron wins, what happens? Um, this is a tough question because I, I, it's sort of like there's no victory tomorrow. Like we, we can maybe say that Macron's slightly less bad than Le Pen, but no matter who wins, it will feel like a defeat. Uh, the French left is disgusted with Macron. And so, you know, seeing his smiling face appear on the television as the winner is going to make lots of people a bit nauseous. Um, in June, there are parliamentary elections in France. So the president has his balance, his power balanced quite marginally, by the French parliament. And so <clears throat> Mélenchon's line on the left has been, this is the third round of the election. So the runoff is the second round, there's a third round. So it will be a big test to see if the left can stay together and add their forces perhaps even more so than at the moment for the parliamentary election beyond. So far, they haven't been able to do that. They've been like cicadas that appear at a presidential election with Mélenchon, and then disappear underground again for all of the elections in between, for local government, for parliament, when it's the old traditional parties who hoover up most of the votes. So that'll be interesting to see. Um, Stanley said earlier that some French leftists are resentful that Mélenchon has been around for so long and is still the figurehead of things. Not, I think, not resentful, frustrated. Frustrated, okay. I think this is almost certainly his last presidential election. So the big question is, can it survive beyond him? And yes, on the one hand, you can make that criticism. Why haven't you made space for someone else? Um, I personally do think he's very adept. And in Britain, we're maybe too far the other way of chucking people out the window once they fail once. But it's actually a serious question for many of us thinking about how do we do radical left politics? Is can we do it without a great big figurehead at the top? And our temptation is always to say, yes, we can. It's got to start at the grassroots build up from the bottom upwards. I'm not sure if that's what the empirical evidence shows. I sort of suspect the answer is we need the two together. We need articulate activists at every level of our organisation, but it certainly helps of someone at the top who goes in the media, um, who wins the battle every time, who's amusing, who's smart, who's funny, engages with people who get their politics by listening to the radio, watching the television, but who aren't linked up with activists yet. And I do think in Britain, we lack a Nigel Farage of the left. And Mélenchon was the Nigel Farage on the left of being a very well-known personality on the left. So now we'll see the difficult question, can the votes that he's brought together and the organisation that he's put together stay together without his shining face at the top? I don't know the answer. Uh, I certainly agree with Harry that tomorrow is not a victory because we either have uh, a right-wing candidate or a, a far-right candidate. If Macron wins, we'll certainly see his true colours of what he believes in politically. And um, we, will, I think we'll see um, on the broad side of it, very much the same, but we'll see some very cutting policies that do show his character. And if Le Pen wins, well, we're going to be in for a really big 
um, surprise in terms of how we in the West think as a society in general. I think she really is going to come in and um, uh, change French politics. But one thing I always find inspiring about France is the 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 raw, true passion of the leftists. They always really do believe in what they are fighting for and actively fight for it. I saw a fight in the streets two days ago between the Communist Party members and some uh, of Le Pen followers. Mm. Like they really do fight for it. And that's something I always found um, inspiring about French politics. So that's a, that's a really that's a, a really uh, vivid and exciting, <laughs> exciting in many ways image. Um, but I just want to talk for a second about Le Pen. Now Le Pen got 23.15% of the vote, um, which for me, for a far right candidate, that is huge. That's like nearly quarter of the people identifying with someone who was Le Front National, um, you know, I know she's tried to move towards a cleaned up image and things like that, but is that really the case? Are there really that many people who who, who are willing to nail their colours to the mast in that, this way and say, I'm behind the far right? Or is there something going on with that demographic where where it's like there are other reasons to vote for Le Pen? For Le Pen? Is it only people who are um, maybe jingoistic or maybe actually genuinely racist? or Or is there something else going on there with Le Pen? And also... If she gets in, what is she going to do? Because I've heard that um, she's going to support Russia, for example, in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I don't know whether that's true or not, but, um, you know, so what's what's going on with her voter base and uh, what will she do if she wins? I think um, she has quite a varied um, supporter base, as we've highlighted tonight, that... Um, they, she has some minor support from maybe some left-wing candidates. She's drawing support from the Conservative Party of France, Les Republicans. Um, and she's obviously taken votes back from Zemmour. So she has quite a variety of different candidates. And also, I think, uh, the Gilets jaunes, the uh, Yellow Vest protests. We haven't mentioned that about. And there may even be people who, as we've said, are frustrated with Macron. And so in terms of what she's going to do after, I think um, we can certainly expect a lot more um, tougher policies towards um, Muslims in France. Well, certainly, uh, concerning Russia, she has said she does not support the invasion and she supports the sanctions. And um, uh, But she's talking about after the conflict, uh, reapproachment of the West and Russia we're actively seeking um, um, positive relationships with Putin, and you can draw with you can draw that from that what you want positive relationships with Putin, and so we would certainly see a um, tearing up of an a tearing up of the policy book from an important Western nation in terms of the current security framework. Mm. Harry, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, in terms of um, Le Pen's electorate, it's hard for me to know. You know, I'm, I'm not in those social media groups. I'm in other ones. 
so it's certainly when her father was a candidate for the far right, you know, it wasn't just the equivalent of UKIP, it was really the equivalent of the BNP and the British National Front and registering 15% of the vote. She's consciously and deliberately watered her down, her image to become more of a Nigel Farage, UKIP type figure. Um, but many people would say that's just uh, that's just the outer coating. A leopard doesn't change its spots. Um, in terms of her voters, how much are they motivated by raw xenophobia? How much are some of them focusing in on specific policies that are moderately redistributive and not thinking about the whole? And also what I think is very important, whether it's UKIP, whether it's Le Pen, whether it's Trump, a sort of a sense of, yeah, I'll give the other lot a kick up the backside. So this sort of, you know, you, you have fun in doing what you're not supposed to do and in causing a you know pain in the backside for Macron or whoever it is of the day. And I suspect that's quite strong. Um, if Le Pen wins, on the one hand, it will lead to a change in France and French politics. On the other hand, if she wins, it will be because French politics and France have already changed. Um, uh, ethnically mixed suburbs of Paris and other cities are already policed very heavily. There are racist police scandals on a very frequent nature in France, which are very shocking. Um, the so-called centrist parties use every dog whistle they can find because they think that's what they've got to do to um, attract a few votes away from Marine Le Pen. So, um, and yes, and when you were compared to the UK, you could say, okay, the, if the equivalent of Le Pen is UKIP, you know, UKIP has never had 23% of the vote nationally. That's not true. I think they did in European elections. But, you know, the Conservatives did capture that vote. And in fact, the European elections are instructive because in the 2019 elections, um, the, the Conservatives had a tiny vote and the Lib Dems and the Brexit party shot up then all those votes went straight back to the Conservative Party. So in the UK, our two-party system does hide both the diversity and the extremity of views um, among the electorate. I think um, when the pen comes in, it will both be certain things she wants to do will be much easier than we'd like to think, because France, like many democracies, has already moved so far to the right. On the other hand, I think she's so hung up on the idea of trying to look respectable, some of the other things will take longer institutional wrangling i think we'll be fighting the same struggles with macron but with a slightly more smiley face and perhaps a slightly slower pace if we're lucky but yes there's little room for optimism other than looking at the legislative the parliamentary elections and hoping the left can stay together and continue to build um, but it's interesting uh you picked up on the third round the parliamentary vote mm -hmm. i think that will be a decider as well because um in France, they have a very big history of presidents being elected from one party and then the, the biggest party in their parliament being from a different party. So the prime minister is often chosen from the biggest parliament parliamentary party, such as Mitterrand, who was a socialist, who then had to work with Jacques Chirac, who was considered right wing of the 80s. So we may even see a um, um, in the third round a one candidate being out um, witted by in the parliamentary elections and their own party not actually being that big. 
So, so that brings in um, that brings in a question from Jacqueline Hemmings, who said, uh, "How much power does the French president have in French domestic policy? Is the French president like the U.S. presidency, where the executive branch is the weakest when it comes to domestic policy?" No, the French president is one of the strongest uh, heads of state in a, in sort of constitutional parliamentary democracy. So the French president has the power to. Um, propose laws, name the prime minister, conduct foreign policy. And significantly, the French president has the power to dissolve the parliament. So it's an extremely powerful um, constitutional figure. Um, and it's balanced only really by the powers of the EU, and which I would view as a problem rather than a benefit, but we can discuss that in a second. Um, in terms of the parliamentary vote, what Stanley says is true. There has been a history of a president from the left, a parliament and a prime minister to the right and vice versa. But when that happened in the 80s and 90s, um, you voted for the president every seven years and the parliament every five years, meaning that these votes would take place at different times. So you had a sort of midterm effect if people were dissatisfied with the president, they'd vote another way for the parliament. Since the early 2000s, both are now every five years, and both are held, the parliament's held right after the election, the presidential election, the result being that the result of the presidential election is replicated in the parliament, because it reflects what people already think, but also big business sit down with the newly elected president and say, okay, you give us a policy, we'll give you some money for your election campaign. So the result has been that the parliament is no longer a balancing force against the president, it's instead becomes a sort of form of supermajority that whoever wins the president then wins the parliament to a very great extent. And there's very little counterbalance. That's what happened in the last five years with Macron. I hope it doesn't happen this time. But with my perspectivist hat on, I'm a bit of a pessimist, unfortunately. Um, I would say the French have never gotten over beheading their king. Like the the you could describe the presidency now as a royal presidency. He has that much power, and um, so as Harry mentioned, he has the power to do a lot more than the U.S. president can. But um, he is certainly a very royal president, and Macron has really even taken that steps further, having his first speech in the um, the Palace of Versailles with all the gold behind him. I didn't know about that. Um, so um, I'm going to come back to the EU in a second. With it, we'll finish off with that. But I just want to take another couple of questions as well. Um, Jane Strange said, "When Marie Le Pen says she wants to ban Muslim dress because women have been forced to wear it, not because she has an issue with Islam, do you think she genuinely believes that?" Hmm. Difficult um, question. I think a lot of the French left definitely swallow that line, the so-called left swallow that line, that, you know, they're helping Muslims, or it's about neutrality. Uh, I don't know, like the personal psychology of Le Pen, I think she's got a very xenophobic background. Um, you can be xenophobic and then look at Arab women and only see a, a, an oppressed subject. But I think also she's so focused on what she needs to do to get elected and like this constantly reoccurring issue of the headscarf, politicians on all sides obsess about it. They think, you know, you do that and your votes will go up 5%. I hope they're wrong. Um, well, I, I I had this conversation with um, an Iranian friend of mine. Uh, she wears the uh, the um, hijab and 
we had this discussion and she just said basically it's like western arrogance like we think the women who wear hijabs are oppressed but she says a lot of people women feel very frustrated that they do wear it out of choice mm. like they believe in islam and they choose to wear it and so but, no no well, it's also had the opposite effect that when it was banned in schools in france a lot of uh students from Muslim families or Muslim backgrounds would systematically, the second they were at the school gate leaving school, put their headscarf back on to make the point of, you know, I do what I want, I wear this. So it encouraged headscarf use as a more positive choice uh, than it otherwise would have among, among some individuals. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I work in two schools at the moment. One's a countryside, uh, white middle class ish there, there are some people from different back, uh, communities of france in the village but also uh, one is um, in the city and i would say a majority of the students would wear um female students would wear the um their religious clothing if they could in schools but none of them in do in the schools do can I ask then, out of curiosity, Stanley, how, how is it enforced that, you know, if, if a student came into your class with the headscarf, who, who stops her and who tells her to take it off? Um, well, from a young age, they are taught mm. the rights of man and the separation of church and state. Mm. It's like it's on the walls. You learn it. You know, like how in America they have to pledge allegiance to the flag. In France, they learn right. the rights of man. And so it's very indoctrinated from a young age. Mm. But also, I believe there's like a systems of uh, coercion and punishment, depending on how many times people. But from what I've seen, generally, most of the, if not all, um, follow the rule of no headscarves in the school. Mm. But then want to wear headscarves when they leave school, which is... Uh... yeah very instructive in that this is not a policy about um, stopping the repression of women. In fact, it's another aspect of um, of repression for women who are not allowed to choose what they wear. Um, oh, dear me. Um, we should have had a woman on this part of the show, most certainly, but, we've div we, um, um, but we, we do that pretty well. Laura always makes sure we do this pretty well, and maybe that's for another show. Um, I'm going to ask one more question and then we're going to talk about the EU and then we're going to finish up. So um, Mark has said, um, is there, an, I think, oh, I can't find it here, but um, is there someone to take the French left forward after Mélenchon? Who would be the figure that you would expect people to get behind maybe? Um, I mean, I know a few potential candidates. My, my, my preference would be Clémentine Autain, uh, for any political anoraks who are interested. Um, I guess it's a question from within the French left, but also like this really, you know, really to work, it's got to survive as, you know, something more than just its figurehead. You know, like like the Labour Party, if Keir Starmer runs over, gets run over by a bus and, you know, may God forbid that never happened, we only defeat him politically. Um, you know, the Labour Party still exists, um, you know, beyond the figurehead. Um, whereas it's not clear that the electoral machine behind Mélenchon, it's got lots of activists, but it's not clear that it's sort of electoral support without his very fiery um, style of communicating at the television. I mean, I'm more optimistic about this, but the actual proof of the pudding hasn't come yet. So I think there are candidates there. 
Um, on the other hand, the risk is, okay, if someone slightly less fiery than him comes up, do people stop paying attention? Conversely, we should be more than just a leader. So we'll see. Um, I think Harry knows more about um, individual candidates of the or individual politicians of the left in France, but I've my contribution can be um, I heard some interesting things about the new anti-capitalist party leader um, Philippe Poutou. He's a he's a factory worker, uh, his past trade, and he got elected as the leader of the NPA. And he um, apparently a lot of people shy away from him because he's very timid. He's very not very outspoken, but when he come onto the um, TV, when he did the TV debates, I think it was the 2017 uh, election, his polls jumped up. And, well, and obviously not from he like 2 to 20. He did 1% of the vote. He, he did. <laughs> but um, I think he could be um, a potential candidate, but I really don't know any others. Okay, so that one's a bit wide open then. Okay, so... Um... Let's talk EU for the last few minutes. So let's talk about EU. Like regardless of um of what happens, there will be interesting questions around France's relationship with the EU. Um I know that Macron has has been publicly very supportive of it, but he appears to be someone who is a bit of a um will will go with the breeze perhaps will um when it comes to certain issues. So, um, and in Le Pen, I, I take it Le Pen doesn't want to be anywhere near the EU, is that right? So um, tell me about this, both of you. She's um, changed her position quite recently. Before, um, it was about Frexit, you know, France leaving the European Union based on Brexit. And um, I remember last summer during some elections, uh, there was posters all over the suburbs of Toulouse, where I was living at the time and Frexit, Frexit, Frexit. But I've read since she's changed her opinion and she wants to be reformed from within and she's not so anti-European anti Union and as opposed to she wants to reform it. But to reform it to what? Um, she There's a quote, she wants to turn it into uh, the Union of Nations that there are not just, it's not just the European Union, it is nations in the European Union. And so she really wants to bring in this um, uh, sovereignism to the EU. Whereas, you know, it's been going more central, central, central. She wants to make it more individual again and broken up based on states. Hmm. Yeah, Harry. Yeah, I think it's interesting how in lots of countries, including famously the UK, um, <laughs> EU's become sort of somewhere where people project all sorts of other political dissatisfactions. And notably this idea that, um, OK, you know, we're told that in politics we can't do a range of things because sort of certain common sense, a sort of technical view in the world, a certain expert language trumps that which I do think is actually how the EU works. So it's surprising how little policy detail filtered through to the UK debate. Um, I don't think Macron is going to take um, a soft or hard Eurosceptic line. I think the EU is too fundamental to his world vision, not to mention his political project. Um, Le Pen, I'm really surprised quite how much she's uh, put water in her wine, having once advocated a referendum on leaving and leaving the euro 
to now not advocating that. I think with the view that it scared off voters. And I think once she's elected, she might still take the view that uh, in order to keep the peace, this is what she has to do. And I do think actually there's no point leaving the EU for the sake of it. Stay in the EU and do what the hell you like, just like the Germans do, and then leave it for the other members to figure out what they're going to do about it. Now, the real policy issue for France that we don't and did not have in the UK is not the EU in general, it is the euro and the fact that France cannot have a monetary or commercial policy. Um, I equivocated for a long time on this uh, and I now wonder why I ever did. You know, why would you get rid of your monetary uh, policy? And so I think that has been something where economic policy in France, like lots of countries in the Eurozone, has been blocked by virtue of the fact that they don't control their own money that they use. Um, and whether that's acknowledged or not, there's sort of a limit to the scope of economic policy that any president can do. So I think that's something structural in the French economy and the Eurozone that sort of breeds resentment for the EU, but paradoxically resentment for the EU and Brussels more than the Euro itself, because it's quite terrifying to abandon your currency um, you know, perhaps not going into the EU because it felt very coordinated and multilateral. But um, even if you support something in theory, it would be a scary thing to leave the euro. But on a purely technical policy level, um, I do think it's necessary. And at some point in the next 10 years, I do think it will happen. Mm. What affects it? Uh, leaving the breakup of the eurozone. Okay. Yeah. And what and establish the franc again as a as a currency yeah i mean there's, there's different ways you could go about it um you know I, I i either you either each country does its own national currency or you could have like you know a fork in the euro so you could have like a mediterranean euro and a germanic euro and then countries align with with, with either one or the other um you know i could go into boring technical details of how i think it would work um you know each note has a barcode and the first letter of the barcode tells you what country it was issued in. So if you had to overnight switch currency, that's how you'd figure out, man, is this a French euro or a German euro or what? Um, but I think, I think the technical cases for staying in the euro are going to get weaker and weaker. I think when the first eurozone crisis happened after the global financial crisis, for a lot of technocrats and politicians, it was unthinkable to leave the euro. I think now that that's happened once, a lot of people have imagined it in their worst crisis. So when there's another crisis, it will appear a lot less unthinkable. And in particular, as countries adjust to the deficits um, that they acquired to manage the COVID-19 pandemic, and there's the same division between big surplus countries in the north, more deficit countries in the south, and Euro and EU rules force countries to reduce their deficits as much as possible. So I think at some point, people who are junior finance ministers now will become finance ministers and cut their losses. Okay, that's a big call. So um, the final big call, I'm going to ask you to uh, make a prediction what you think is going to happen tomorrow. And uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll have to call it an evening because we're a little bit over time. But um, so Stanley, um, what do you think is going to happen tomorrow? Um, I think it's going to be tight, but I think 
I do not know who's going to win. I, I think I'm sort of um, blurred by my want to stay in France. Um, so I sort of hope Macron wins in a way. Oh, it feels horrible saying that, but it's, I do. Mm. Um, so I think my own view is a bit um, distorted. So I do hope Macron wins, and but I do think it's going to be close. Do you get a vote, by the way? No. So before Brexit, it was um, uh, EU nationals could vote in municipal elections, so mayors and councils. Uh, but under Brexit, we're no longer EU nationals, and I don't get to vote in presidential, parliamentary, uh, mayors, nothing. Okay. All right. Well, so I've been asking people to vote for myself in the election. <laughs> okay. Well. Um, thank. Well. Hopefully. Um, hopefully, you won't be ejected from uh, your country of residence. Uh, that would be an awful thing. So I hope things work out for you there, Harry. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, so as Stanley said earlier, the polls put Macron, you know, fifty-five percent in the straight runoff, maybe slightly more. And the margin of error would really have to be way out for that to tip to a Le Pen victory. That said, I think lots of people are just going to not bother going to the polling stations. They're going to say, I'll let someone else decide. So I suspect it's going to be very knife edge when the exit polls come. And a lot of people will be up late and the markets might do a little bit of a sort of small roller coaster off the back of that. Um, as I say, um, the polls show that Macron should get it. He's got a lot of support from old voters who are large in number and tend to turn out. So I reckon he'll hang on. But the fact that the far right has made it to the runoff for the third time now in the 21st century in France, and each time increased significantly their share of the vote, I think that's going to have implications, especially when we look at a geographic map of the result. And we can say, OK, Macron won nationally, narrowly, maybe. But look, in this place, in this place, in this place, in this region, the far right came ahead. And it's not over till it's over. And that requires the parliamentary elections in June. Is there any chance the pollsters have got it wrong and um, we'll see something very similar to what we had in um, when Trump won the election? I mean, basically, yes. I mean, it's um, so, so something that's important to know about polls is, you know, obviously they ring people up and say, how are you going to vote? but then not everyone actually goes out and vote. So when you factor in turnout, you warp a lot your raw data in the poll. Now, every couple of elections, the pattern of who does and doesn't turn out changes a lot. So polls tend not to stay together. Polling models tend not to work more than a few elections in the future. And what we've seen lately is in lots of countries, polls getting it wrong, including in France. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if tomorrow, if during the day we hear low turnout, low turnout, low turnout, that benefits Marine Le Pen, because a lot of people who aren't supporters of either haven't bothered going to the polling stations to vote in Macron. And some people are also, I think, will do a kick up the backside vote for Le Pen, because people really don't like Macron now after five years of heavy policing, economic austerity, his general mannerism hasn't been good. So, um, yeah, I think a, a, a knife-edge election and, yeah, I, I think a narrow victory for Le Pen is not totally out of sight either. 
Right. Um, okay, well, what I'm going to say is on behalf of Socialist Think Tank, thank you so much for coming on and educating me massively about what's going on in France. Um, you can become a member of Socialist Think Tank if you like. It is free. We do accept donations to help us keep doing our work. But you don't have to do that if you don't want to because we are socialists and we believe in bringing people together. You don't have to be affiliated with any particular political party or be from any country to do that. We accept people from around the world and uh, from all sorts of political backgrounds. So, um, uh, but as long as like, we don't want you, we don't want you if you're far right. You know, <laughs> I think that should go without saying. So, um, yeah, thank you so much, the audience tonight. Your comments have been absolutely brilliant. Um, as always, we will see you again very, very soon. Um, this week, we've got Political Unmuted coming up. Um, the poll should be coming out for that very soon. And uh, we also have next Saturday... We have the filmmaker Dan Draper coming on to talk about his new film, which was filmed in uh, Liverpool Walton Constituency Labour Party. So we'll be joined with some of the stars of that show as well. So something a little bit different, you know, like we like to get a little bit artsy every now and then. So that's going to be one of those things there. Um, thank you very much, everyone. And um, we hope to see you soon. Um, Take care. We'll keep the red flag flying here.